Hello? Aha! Good morning. And happy Father's Day. Can we give it up for all the dads here today? Uh, this is Father's Day. There will be some stuff, especially for dads in the middle, but our sermon today is not how to be a good father. This is stuff that applies to every single person. If you're a human being trying to serve Jesus Christ, and that's your goal in life, that's what you're trying to do, this is going to apply to you today. This whole summer, we're trying to get super practical. We've talked about all these big ideas for quite some time, what every church everywhere is supposed to be about, how Morrison Hill, we feel God is really trying to call us in specific directions to get those jobs done. But we're getting really laser focused over this summer. How do you tell the story? We're talking about that we've got to pray. We've got to pray for opportunities. We've got to ask God for opportunities to share the story. We've got to ask for specific people, uh, relentlessly and specifically pray for so many of this stuff. That's so important. We've got to tell the story. We, we, we're never going to get anywhere unless we at least try to share the gospel, try to invite people to, into our community, try to reach out to people whether we think they will eventually come to Jesus or not. But most of all, what we're really focusing on this summer is this, that we've got to live the story. Nobody's going to listen unless we actually do the things that we're, we're, we believe, that we actually live by the things that we believe, that we actually know Jesus and we're following him, that we're actually doing our very best to raise our children to do that, that we're drawing people into a genuine, true community that is all about following Jesus. But how do you do that? That's what we're trying to do this, this whole summer is get really practical. So here's something practical. This applies to every single person. How do you fit, tell the story when you're tempted? How do you tell the story when you're tempted? And notice I say when, not if, because that's how the scripture says it. We're going to read some of those scriptures in just a moment together. But it's not a matter of if you're tempted. You will be tempted. We all face temptation. That's part of the experience of every person of faith ever. And it's hard. It's always going to be hard. It's never going to be easy no matter what we do. But here's the first nugget of truth that I hope you can latch onto and really grab. There's going to be several of these today. If you want to follow along with the bulletin insert, there's a Bible study in there and got some blanks and everything. I know that's not for everybody, but if that's for you, it's there. If not, you can take it home later and look at all these scriptures way deeper and just let God and his spirit speak to you on a deep, deep level. That's what the life groups are doing together. It's going to be pretty cool. But let me tell you this right up. We make it harder than it has to be. Temptation is always going to be hard, no matter what. But a lot of times, we make it harder than it has to be. And to, today, I want to tell you not how to make it easy, but how to make it a little easier. How to, how to access the power and the choices that we have that makes it not quite as hard as it usually is. I hope that makes sense. But first of all, let's read this together. This is the first clue in that direction. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says this. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Again, notice it says when you are tempted, not if you are tempted. When you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So here's the first 
First thing, here's the first thing that can make it at least a little easier. Pray and look for the way out. There's going to be one. God has promises and God keep us his, keeps his promises. Maybe that, that temptation is more than you can bear. Except that he's going to be there with you and he's going to give you a way out. The, the reason it seems even harder than it has to be sometimes is we're not even praying about that. We're not even looking for it. We don't even imagine there could be a way out. All we're thinking about is how hard it is and how much it feels like it's us that wants it. How much it feels like it's something in our body, in our own brain, in our own heart, that, that this is who I am. This is what I do. This is, we're so desperately wanting this thing, this thing that is tempting us that we don't even try. We don't even look for the way out. We don't even pray about it. We don't even ask God, please help me find this way out you promised. Again, it's not going to make it easy, but it makes it a lot easier when you pray, and when you look for the way out. Jesus experienced temptation his whole life because we're going to read that scripture together in just a moment as well. The Bible tells us he was tempted in every way just as we are. But there's one particular season of Jesus' life that's particularly significant because we go through those kind of seasons too. We call this the temptation of Christ. It's found in Matthew 4 and hinted at it a couple other places. Matthew has the longest version of the story. But there's this, this moment in Jesus' life. It was right after he got baptized. Jesus completely um, does, he, he's fulfilled every single thing up to that point. He's lived roughly 30 years on the planet as a human being. He's already experienced a lot of temptation. All the stuff that we all go through before we're about 30. He's, he's experienced all of that stuff. And then he gets to this spot where he completely uh, is getting ready. He's surrendering everything. He's set, intentionally starting to set an example for everyone in every direction. And so he, he goes through the baptism with John. And John points out this is the Lamb of God. He goes through that whole thing. And then immediately, the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness. It's a really interesting thing. I've seen this happen with a lot of people when they first give their lives to Christ. That there's this, there's this moment right, right when they first come to Christ where it's, it's kind of like God saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And, and they, they experience this wonderful blessing and the Holy Spirit coming down on them, the gift of the Holy Spirit coming, almost in a visual way. It's just so real and so tangible and they get it. And it's so, so amazing. And then they go into this time where they're just, they want nothing but God. Notice what the Holy Spirit led him into. 40 days of fasting and prayer. Jesus was God. He was with God. He was God long before even what the Bible calls the beginning. And yet, this was the first time as God incarnate, as God's son on earth, this is the first time he'd fully experienced what it's like to be a, a baptized believer with the gift of the Holy Spirit and interacting with God as a human being that's fully surrendered to him. He's not stopped being Jesus He's not stopped being the word of God. And yet this is, in, as he's experiencing life, he's experiencing everything that we experience. This is the moment, these 40 days. This is where he's starting to get used to what it's like as a human being that can pray, that has the Holy Spirit in them, and yet is a human being trying to wrestle with God, trying to experience God that way. He's got 40 days of this. And that's actually pretty empowering. Even with the fasting going on, that's pretty cool. But then at the end... It's not the Holy Spirit who tempts him. It's the Holy Spirit who leads him into that time of temptation. It's not the Holy Spirit who tempts him. That's very important. We'll come back to that in a second. It's the devil 
But the devil himself shows up at the end of this, this little season of Jesus' life, and he tempts him. And it's really interesting what he tempts him with. Fathers, I told you I'd mention to you guys, especially a couple of times today, I will, but again, this applies to everybody. I just think this is interesting. For whatever reason, God set it up, his ideal. I realize that he has so much grace and he has so much, even for those of us who are trying our best to live our lives, he still has to give us grace and forgiveness. None of us, I certainly don't, get it 100% right. Nobody does. But his ideal, the unmistakable ideal, is that the father is the head of the household. That the, the father, the husband, is the one that most represents the authority of God, the leadership of God, the one who gives the name to the rest of the family, the one who gives the identity to the rest of the family. That primarily, that, that, that person in the family is the father. Ideally, that's how he set this up. I hope that makes sense. I hope you guys get where this is going. But notice what Jesus is tempted with in this massive season of temptation that he's going through. He's, every temptation, one way or another, attacks that his identity. Are you really the son of God? Is God really going to take care of you the way he promises he will? Are you really going to be able to save the world the way he sent you to save the world? What if I could help you do that a better way, a faster way than your father could? What if I, he's messing with his identity. He's messing with his relationship with God himself. And that's always the way that God is going, or the devil is always going to mess with us in those ways. He's going to attack our identity in Christ. He's going to attack who we are. He's going to attack God being our father and us being his children. He's going to attack the goodness of God. Is God really good? Is he really going to take care of you? Are you really his child? He's always going to bring that stuff into it. But also notice the way out that Jesus had every single time. I know you've heard this story, but every time the devil says, hey, turn stone into bread, uh, jump off this building, see what happens. Let me bow down to me and watch what happens. He's testing Jesus in all these ways. And every single time, Jesus quotes scripture to him. In fact, he quotes the book of Deuteronomy to him of all books. Uh, Rich Mullins has an awesome song called Quoting Deuteronomy to the Devil. If you've never heard that, I'm sure it's on YouTube or something. You should look it up. It's a great, great song. But this is one of the ways out that God always provides to all of us. But Jesus, as a fully God, and yet in this moment in his life, fully human, he had spent most of his 30 years up to this point just dwelling on scripture, not only whatever he already still had a knowledge of God being who he was, as a human being living on this planet, he had also memorized the scriptures. He had grown up as a, as a young Jewish boy. He had to memorize huge chunks of scripture. This had become part of him. And so when the devil tempts him, he has it right there. And he tacks right back. He's got those tools in his tools box, toolbox. He's got arrows in his quiver ready to rock. I don't think we should miss that. I think one of the ways out that God always is going to have for us, if we take the time all the time to make sure we're putting those tools in our toolbox, putting those arrows in our quivers, is always going to be scripture. That's one of the ways out he's always going to provide. Speaking of scripture, over the course of the summer, we're going to keep going back to the story of Joseph. 
And if uh, you probably heard the story of Joseph probably many times, it's one of the great ones we learn in junior church and in Sunday school when we're little kids. It's a great story. It's an awesome guy. It's inspiring. My dear to you is over the course of the summer, go back and read the original story. Even throughout the scripture, it's referred back to several times, but the actual story itself is in Genesis 37 through 50. And I, I, you should just sit down and read it. Read it like it's a novel or something. Just read it and just watch what, what God shows you just reading it, not with anybody unpacking it. Just read it. It's a great story. It's awesome. It's really cool. But we're going to use it as a way to unpack some of the storytelling strategies we're doing all summer long. Really briefly, here's two little spots of that story because they take us where we're going today. First off, as a young boy, Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt. And while he's there, he keeps following God. He keeps doing his best. He keeps, like my dad talked about last time, at his place of work and as he faced suffering, he completely surrenders to God the whole time. He stays faithful. He works. And so his life was telling a story. And God was blessing him. Would you read this verse, Genesis 39, verse 2, with me out loud? says, the Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did in the home of his Egyptian master. The Lord was with Joseph. No matter how it seems or feels, God is always with us. Would you say that out loud with me? No matter how it seems or feels, God is always with us. Let me explain what that means, because there's some layers to that, okay? On the one layer, God is always with us. What that means is God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. There's nowhere you can get. Deepest part of the ocean, highest part of any mountains or out in space, there's nowhere you can go where God doesn't have access to you or you don't have access to God. God is so big that no matter what you do, he is accessible. No matter where you go, he is accessible and he can access you. So God is always with us in one way or another, no matter what. And that's unconditional. And yet throughout scripture, there's all these, uh, there's a whole nother layer. There's a you reap what you sow kind of layer to God's presence. He says, when two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Uh, the Lord dwells in the praises of his people. And I could go on and on. There's sp- God shows up in a specific, more powerful way when we pray. He always hears every prayer everywhere, and yet he says the prayer of a righteous person has a lot of power. There's something going on here. And so when we see that the Lord was with Joseph, what we want to say is, wait a second, how can, we say, how can he be with Joseph when Joseph is living as a slave? How can he possibly be with Joseph? Why isn't Joseph free? Why is Joseph? Well, we have all these questions. But what we see is this. God is not only with Joseph because he's with everybody, but because Joseph is living righteously. He is consistently trusting God, even when it doesn't seem like he's there or feel like he's there. God is fully present in the life of Joseph. Joseph senses, even in the midst of the slavery, even in the midst of being so far away from his family, nobody else speaks his home language anywhere as far as he can see. All of that lonely, all of that, in the midst of all that, God is with him. And he's blessing everything that he does. He's blessing the whole household that has got him there as a slave. And that's powerful. And that's something to hold on to. Because even in the worst possible times, even in your deepest, darkest seasons of temptation... God is still with you. 
And if in those moments you are choosing righteousness, if in those moments you are actually choosing to obey him, to trust him and obey him, no matter how it seems, no matter how it feels, he promises to be with you. I love, I love how the, the little passage of Genesis 39, verses 8 through 9 start. Uh, first, let me tell you what happens. Potiphar's wife starts noticing Joseph. Potiphar is the guy who owns him. He's this rich Egyptian guy. He's very well-known, respected, rich guy. And under Joseph's authority in this household, he's become more successful in everything than ever. And apparently, Joseph was also this really good-looking guy. And he's there all the time. Potiphar's not. So his wife notices Joseph and starts trying to seduce him. Pretty sure you guys have heard this story. I love the way this little passage starts out. It's not written up there, but it says this. But he refused. That's it. But he refused. And, and we're always looking for these ways out. And I think one of, the, one of the things we usually expect from God and are disappointed by is we think what that means is the temptation is going to go away. It's not going to be hard anymore. The way out that we want him to give us is that it's, it's just easy now. I'm not thinking about it anymore. It's, it's just gone. That's not what he promises. But there is one of the ways out that's always there, no matter how hard it is. I'm not saying it's easy, but no matter how hard it is in the moment, guess this is one of the tools in your toolbox. You can just say no. Seriously. You can just say, I refuse to do that. There is, even without the Holy Spirit's help, sometimes you can just say no. And with the Holy Spirit's help, you can always say no. That's one of the ways out that he provides. There's scripture, and then there's just this ability he gives us to choose stuff. We say no to God all the time. We say no to good things all the time. We can also say no to bad things, and it's just that simple. Am I going to buy a Coke or a Pepsi? I say no to Pepsi. I say yes to Coke. It's that easy. Not really, but do you understand? It's that simple. That's one of the things that God gives us. But notice what, specifically what Joseph says here. He says, my master, he's talking to Potiphar's wife. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? He sees that this is a much bigger thing going on than just some temptation, just something he could or could not do that day. He understands there's so much more at stake, so much more involved. His very identity, his very um, relationship with God, his relationship with Potiphar, all his reputation, his integrity, everything is at stake here. It's not just one thing. It's not just one choice. It's not just one temptation. This is bigger, and he gets that. Notice what she does next. Genesis 39.10. She kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day. But he refused to sleep with her. There's that refuse again. And he kept himself out of her way as much as possible. He refused to, keep him, to sleep with her. He kept himself out of her way as much as possible. Joseph understood three key things. If you're keeping notes, you should write these down. If not, you should really make a note of this. This is huge. Again, I'm not saying any of this is easy, but it's true and it's real and it will help you. Okay? Number one, Joseph knew that to stay pure, we've got to focus on the good stuff. 
He didn't stop working for Potiphar. He didn't stop doing all the things he was doing to pursue God and to work hard and to be who he was because now he's just sitting in his room going, oh my gosh, how am I going to say no to Potiphar's wife? He focuses on what he needs to do. He does the right stuff. He focuses on that and he just stays right at it. Whenever she sees him, whenever she confronts him, whenever day after day she offers again the opportunity to sin, he refuses again and again and again. But he also consciously avoids her. Consciously avoids walking by her bedroom. Consciously avoids walking by the swimming pool when she's swimming or whatever it is, okay? He's avoiding this situation. He's doing everything he can to make doing the wrong thing hard and doing the right thing easy. It's never going to be totally easy, but he's doing everything he can, and that helps. Is this making sense so far? Are you guys getting this? Because this is like, this is so basic, and yet most of us miss this. Most of us miss it all the time. That's why sin is even harder than it has to be. Paul writes this in Ephesians 5.3. Would you say this one out loud with me? Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Moral purity is not a gray area in Scripture. The idea of moral purity is not a great area, and neither is the stuff God wants us to focus on, building his kingdom and becoming more and more like Jesus day after day. It's not up for grabs. It's not something you have to squint to read into Scripture. This is just how it is. We, we cannot surrender to the devil. We have to surrender to the Holy Spirit. It's that simple. James 4, 7. Let's read this together as well out loud. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I'm sure you've heard that story. When it came down to it, the way Joseph finally got away from her the last time was she grabbed at him, grabbed some of his clothes. He just ducked out of it and literally ran. He fled. He, he just physically went away. The devil has to do that to us. He has to run away from us at the end. Sometimes there is a season of testing. Sometimes it's not going to instantly go away. Sometimes it's going to even get harder and harder as it goes. But when we are faithful, just like what Joseph experienced, when we are faithful, God is with us and there is a way out. Here's something else that Joseph knew. He knew that he had to stay faithful. He had to stay pure for God's sake. For the sake of God, for out of respect for God. This was bigger than him. This wasn't just him and his choices, him and his body, him and his life. He knew that his very relationship with God and his identity as someone who represented God, that this was super important. He understood what was at stake here. That's why he said, I cannot do this wicked thing and sin against God. James writes this, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then after desire has conceived and gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown gives birth to death. Jesus pronounced woes on people who tempted other people. He said, temptation is bound to come. But woe to those. How terrible it will be for those who tempt other people. It's very clear. There's no way to miss this. That God does not 
tempt us. God does not say, come on, you know you want to do it. That is never God. And if you ever hear a voice in your head or someone else in your life is trying to get you to do something that is clearly a sin in Scripture, clearly defined by God himself as sin, guess what? That is not God's voice. That is not God. He will never tempt you. That's a promise. However, let's read this line from Jesus' prayer that he taught us. Because this is really confuses a lot of people. This is a big deal. And I want to make sure you guys understand this. And that I'm reminded myself. Matthew 6.13, Jesus says, let's pray this to God together. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Hmm. So he does not tempt us. Absolutely not. No chance. And yet we're supposed to pray every day that he won't lead us into temptation. What's the difference? Well, you see it in the way Jesus' temptation in the wilderness went. The Holy Spirit led him there. The Holy Spirit led him there to fast and pray for 40 days. The Holy Spirit knew on the other end of that was going to be temptation. But it was the devil himself that tempted Jesus, not the Holy Spirit, right? And here's the thing, another thing for fathers. All you fathers know, mothers too, but this is Father's Day, so you bring me, Okay. All you fathers know that there are moments when, as a good father, you have to let your child face something on their own. There are moments when you go, you're going to have to change that tire by yourself this time. You're going to have to study for that test by yourself. You're going to have to get a job. You're going to have to face the music for that thing you did wrong by yourself this time. There, there's going to be, there are moments when we know. There are challenges we have to put before our children when we go, the thing you need is this. But, the, but a good father is always rooting for them. They're not saying... They're going to fall so bad. <laughs> Watch this. They're going to fail. That's not what fathers do, right? Not good fathers. We have a good, good father in God. But we do sometimes have to lead our children into situations where it's going to be hard for them. And we know it's going to be hard for them, but we also know it's going to be good. And we know that sometimes Jesus knows, God knows that sometimes the way to beat temptation, to actually conquer temptation, is to face it head on. And so sometimes he does lead us into temptation. But I've still got some questions. Because if he does lead us in temptation, why would Jesus tell us to pray that he doesn't? That's weird, isn't it? So I'm going to go back to Greek for a second. Just so you know, I do this a lot. And I'm not showing off. I, I can't figure out why I'd try to show off by telling you Greek stuff. Who cares about Greek stuff? Nobody cares. Oh, look at how well he knows Greek. What a dude. That's not what I'm trying to do. But it's one of the most precise languages there's ever been. It's the language the scripture was written in. So when I really want to know, I keep going back there. I want to know exactly. Well, here's what lead means. It means lead, like we'd say, take someone somewhere, or bring, or carry. That same word, it means guide. It means take someone from one place to another. So when he says, lead us not into temptation, it's talking about God actually taking you somewhere, just like the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. So at least we know that much. How about this? The word deliver, the word we translate deliver, it means the same thing as rescue or save, protect, keep me from. So you've got this two things going on in the same line. One is don't lead me into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Save me from evil. 
And we know from other parts in Scripture that sometimes the evil is actually in our own heart. We just read one of those verses a few minutes ago. Sometimes it's literally the devil himself. Sometimes it's somebody else, like Potiphar's wife in the story of Joseph. It comes from a lot of different places. But what he's saying is, don't lead me into temptation. Deliver me from evil. But here's one of the deepest ideas in this, and we don't have time to dig deep. There's a whole sermon about this online. If you go to morrisonhill.com, you can probably find it pretty easily. But more than anything, the Lord's Prayer is not about how to get God to do our will. More than anything, the Lord's Prayer is about us daily sinking our will to His. It starts with, My Father in heaven. May your name be praised. Your kingdom come. And it just keeps on going down. And by the time it gets down to lead us not into temptation, but deliver from evil, it's a lot like where Jesus prayed in the garden, Father, if there is any way, let this cup pass from me. And yet, nevertheless, your will, not mine, be done. So we're praying, please don't lead me into temptation today. I am so weak. I can't do this on my own. But if you have to, This is one of those days. Deliver me from evil. Show me the way out. This is that prayer that I told you about at the very beginning. We're going to have to move a lot faster. We've got to wrap this thing up this morning. There's a lot of really practical stuff at the end. Please pay attention. Please listen because I want to get all these tools in your toolbox. I'm going to get all the arrows. I need to hear it one more time myself. And I just said it all a couple hours ago. So here we go. We've also got to stay pure for ourselves. Okay, don't play the victim. Don't ever play the victim. You are a child of God and you have the Holy Spirit living in you if you are a child of God. God says, and John, the apostle writes in John 4, 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Philippians 2, verses 14 to 15. Let's read this together because this is powerful. It says, do everything without complaining or arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Let's read this next one together as well. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. This is the only part of this whole equation of how to stay away from sin that's actually sounds even a little bit selfish and it's not really selfish but there are sins and this is one of them any sexual sin is one there are several others as well but they actually hurt us they hurt our bodies they hurt us or they hurt our souls they hurt our hearts they hurt our identity why would you do that why would you intentionally hurt yourself that's nuts and yet that's exactly what the devil and even ourselves Many other people try to tempt us to do. Things that hurt ourselves. Don't. It hurts you. Sexual immorality is one of those that actually hurts. It seems like it's going to be great. It seems like it's something you're doing kind for yourself, but you're hurting yourself. Even more important than doing it for yourself, obviously God is most important, so do it for God, do it for yourself. Even more important than yourself is this. Do it for the person who's tempting you. Notice that when Joseph was resisting Potiphar's wife, he he doesn't just just say no. He also says, how could I do this against God? And you're someone else's wife. 
In fact, consistently throughout Scripture, one of the things I love about it is even though it's written so long ago and into a lot of cultures that were very much against women, saw women as property or, or less human than men, the Bible consistently consistently honors women, treats them as equals in their made in the image of God. They have a specific role just like men do. God is consistently respects women. We know most of their names when they were heroes. We know those stories. We're told those stories. I love that. And yet here's a lady who's a prominent part of scripture. She's quoted and referred to over and over. We don't even know her name. She's just called Potiphar's wife. It's not because she doesn't matter. It's not because her name doesn't matter. Her identity doesn't matter. Here's what matters in this story. She's not Joseph's wife. She's Potiphar's wife. As the story got passed down before it got written down, that was the point of the story, was not who she was and what she wanted and what her background was. She mattered as a human being. If she were a child of God, she would have mattered as a child of God. But in this story, what matters is she was someone else's wife. Does that make sense? And Joseph knew this. He remembered this. And so he said, I cannot sin against God. I can't sin against Potiphar. I can't sin against you because you're not available to me. You're someone else's wife. Our sins don't just affect us. They affect everyone around us. You can't commit adultery by yourself. And not only are you affected and that one other person is affected, but so are everybody else on both sides of your family and all your friends and churches and communities and anybody else. That It affects so many people. Sin spreads like a disease. The good news is righteousness does too, which is another reason that we focus on the good stuff. We refuse and we avoid the bad stuff. In Romans, Paul writes, yes, each of us will give a personal account to God. So let's stop condemning each other. Decide instead to, notice this this phrase, this is one I really want to focus on. Live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. Excuse me. Live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. Sometimes... The only thing that will keep us out of sin, the way out, is just remembering that we're not the only person in this equation. I'll be be just completely frank with you. As much as I love God, as much as I don't want to intentionally hurt my own body, there are many times that I, what my way out that I find is remembering that there's other people watching. That it's not just between me and God. It's not just a choice that I'm making. It's not just whether I'm helping or hurting my body. There's a lot more people involved in this. And that way out is available to you as well. Because there are always people watching us. Not just the person who's tempting you in the moment, but many, many, many other people. And Jesus is the source of our power, but he's also the ultimate example of what all of this looks like. As we wrap up this morning, here's what's going to happen. We're going to read one more big scripture together. I'm going to give you one snippet of a story of somebody who really inspires me. I hope it will inspire you. And then I'm going to give you some challenges. And while I give you the challenges, the band's going to come. We're going to make a commitment. So I'm just telling you straight up, this is where we're going. You ready? First, let's read this together. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. 
But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I just want to point out one thing on this. Approaching the throne of grace with confidence is not just when you've already sinned. I think a lot of times we cheapen this verse and we, 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 we don't get the full power because we go, okay, so when I mess up, I can approach the throne of grace and find mercy in my time of need. Yes, it means that, but that's not all it means. It also means you can approach in the moment of temptation, you can approach the throne of grace with confidence. When it's overwhelming, you can approach the throne of grace with confidence. And this person who knows, who understands, who's been tempted in every way just as we are and yet was without sin, will understand and not going to go, are you kidding me? You want to do what? He's going to understand and he's going to deliver us. He's going to show us the way out because he's gracious and merciful. And he does, he leads us into temptation, but he never tempts us. He's cheering for us. He's wanting to see us succeed, just like a good father leads someone into a situation, but then it's going, come on, you got this. Come on, you got this. Come on. Yes. Yes. You know what I'm talking about? That's God. Desmond Doss is one of my Heroes, I bring him up several times and intentionally working him into several of these messages over the summer because he was so consistent in the way that he lived out his faith. I don't agree with every single thing he believed. What I do totally agree with is, man, he was committed to what he believed. He lived out his faith in everyone. There was one crucial moment. He had a very pure, very wonderful relationship, godly relationship with his wife. And that's a whole other story. But there was this one moment where she was trying to get him to compromise some other values that he had. And this is what he said. I don't know how I'm going to live with myself if I don't stay true to what I believe, much less how you could live with me. I'd never be the man I want to be in your eyes. To me, that puts all this, kind of smashes it all together. That's the kind of attitude that gives you a way out. The attitude that makes it not easy, but also not as hard as we make it sometimes to live a pure life and to win when we face temptation. So here's the challenges I'm giving you this morning. Number one, what are you going to focus on? There's something specific, I guarantee you, that God wants you to do. And one of the reasons that it's harder than it has to be to face temptation is because we're just not putting all of our energy and time and money and emotion into the stuff God wants us to focus on. What's God been calling you to do? Focus on that. You should write it down. You should figure that out or take it home and prayerfully decide. But what, if you do that, I promise you it will help. Secondly, what are you going to refuse to do? I guarantee you, if you're breathing this morning, something is tempting you, something is bothering you, something is somehow, you're being attacked on one level or another. What are you going to do to say no? Maybe you need accountability. There's a whole long list of things you could do, strategies you could do, but how are you going to do it? Number three, how are you going to avoid those situations where it makes it really easy to do the wrong thing, really hard to do the right thing? How are you going to reverse that? How are you going to figure out ways to avoid those situations, those relationships, those habits, those whatever else? Make it so that it's easy to do the right thing, hard to do the wrong thing. What are you going to do about that today? Whatever you're going to do, 
make that choice as we stand and sing together. If you have a, a, a decision you'd like to share with all of us, we'd love that. If you just want to come forward and pray, of course, that's wonderful. If you want to give your life to Christ, please do that this morning. But would every one of us make one of these commitments today? Can we say, God, I, I'm going to do that. Whatever he just told you, would you promise you're going to do that as you sing? Let's do that.